0: eternal glory is your church. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us in worship, for Jordan leading us in communion and focus on our God and Savior. It is awesome to see all of you together this morning, gathered as God's church at Christmas season. And I want to encourage you right now to take your Bibles, uh, if you've got them, if you want to borrow the one that is in the rack in the pew in front of you, feel free uh, to do that as we continue uh, an ongoing series in the New Testament book of First Timothy. We're going to continue this series right up until the uh, Christmas weekend. We will take a couple of breaks from our series in First Timothy, a couple of weeks break from our series in 1 Timothy over the Christmas and New Year holidays, and then resume it in January. But for the next couple Sundays, we're going to continue right on in this series where we're looking at God's uh, house rules, as we've called it. God's instructions to a first century church, and really to all churches since then, about how we are to behave in the household of God. And the reason. God is so interested in how Christians behave in our uh, church life together, how we're structured, how we're organized, and how we interact with one another is because the way we behave puts Jesus on display. Uh, we've each week been kind of putting this slide up on the screen to kind of capture both with words and with a, a brief picture sort of the message of the whole book of 1 Timothy really is. And, and in a bottom line nutshell, it is simply this, that, that what a church believes determines how that church behaves and the way that we behave determines who the world beholds. We can say we're all about Jesus, but if we are fighting for ourselves and, and, and looking out only for number one and kind of pretty much acting like everybody else in the world acts, then there's no real distinctive difference between Christians and the way we act and behave versus others. And therefore, Jesus is not glorified. We are. We are put on display, even as we say it's all about Jesus. In other words, actions speak louder than words. Right? The book of 1 Timothy is is interested in how a church behaves because our actions add credence and value to our words all of which we are as a church a pedestal that puts Jesus on display Now, as we've been walking through chapter 1, kind of outlined this whole idea, and we got all this from chapter 1. And then last week, we started into chapter 2, which is the rest of the book of 1 Timothy. And this is where the idea gets applied to numerous specific instructions that the Apostle Paul, who was originally writing this, gives to Timothy, his protege, who is leading the church in the first century city of Ephesus, telling him what to teach the church and how to organize them. It starts to get very practical and specific. Last week's sermon focused on prayer the way we pray how we pray because they clearly weren't doing that right this morning's passage is going to pick up on that theme of prayer and apply some specific instructions to the men in the church as well as some specific instructions to the women in the church and the passage that we're going to deal with this morning is a challenging one especially for modern people because we're already talking about men and women and it's not lost on me that there's a man up here talking about how women are supposed to behave in church. That automatically raises the temperature in the room a few degrees, doesn't it? Or lowers it, depending on how you respond <laughs> You respond to that. Um, This is a a, a challenging passage the end of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Challenging not because God has changed his opinion or or anything that, that we just saw from Psalm 19 is different. God's words are still true and they are a source of joy for the heart. It's not challenging for that reason. It's challenging because we're modern people. And this is one of these passages that when you're a church and you force yourself to preach from the beginning of a book to the end of a book of Scripture like we typically do here at Harvest, you're forced to deal with passages that most other people would like to avoid because they strike the modern ear sort of tinny and they're hard to hear. This kind of a passage is usually only referred to, and that's unfortunate because that means the only time you hear it, uh, you usually hear these verses pulled out of their context in 1 Timothy, and you also hear them pulled out of the larger context of the Bible, and, and this is one of the passages of Scripture that people who don't like churches and don't like Christianity love to go to and quote and say, isn't that awful? See, you don't want anything to do with that. Now, those of you that read the passage ahead of time know exactly what I'm talking about. The rest of you are like, wow, what are we talking about this morning? I'm excited to get into this. Well, this morning we get the opportunity to see this passage in its context and hopefully see its beauty as well. So I'm going to read First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, and then we're going to back up and understand what God has for us as his church, hopefully, from this passage. First Timothy chapter 2, starting verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, he's talking about in churches here, lifting up holy hands without anger, or quarreling. Likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's word for us. Glad you came to church this morning. Any idea why people often cite this out of context as a gotcha passage in Scripture? It's pretty self-evident, is it not? What in the world is going on here? Actually, when you read that passage initially, it can start to sound like the more it goes on, the more random it gets, like stuff starts coming out of nowhere. He's already talking about how people are supposed to behave in a church in the first century as men and as women, and then he goes off and he starts talking about Adam and Eve, and then he brings up childbearing, and it's like, what in the world is going on here? It sounds random. But it's actually not random, because there is a beautiful scheme in the Bible that is being referred back to here. And and that's what I want us to see this morning. This, This can be a difficult passage for us to read as modern people, because none of us approach this topic from a neutral standpoint. Like this is what it means to be a man, and what it means to be a woman, if anything. Those are not neutral topics for any of us. They're deeply personal topics, and they're topics that we all have experience with. It's a difficult subject for many of us to read in part because of that personal experience. And for some of us, we don't have any real negative experiences with gender-related issues. And if that's you, that's great. But for a lot of us, that's just not the case. A lot of us have been victims of gender roles played out wrong in thousands of ways. And particularly, if you've had significant pain in your life, such as neglect or manipulation or even outright abuse, from somebody uh, of the opposite sex, somebody who was in a position of power, a parent or a coach or a teacher or, or somebody like that. Maybe you've had that happen to you from a woman or more often you've had that happen to you from a man. All of that is going like, to deeply affect how we see any issue or any discussion related to manhood and womanhood. That's totally understandable. So it's, it's complicated because we have personal experiences, but as if that wasn't bad enough, it's not just our personal experiences, it's our culture's experience with this topic that also makes it really a challenging topic to deal with. Uh, the last few decades of the 20th century, the, the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, saw an aggressive and, and even at times militant feminism in our country that was actively seeking to break down any walls of distinction between men and women. And it was successful, culturally speaking. In fact, it was so successful, feminism was so successful in the second half of the 20th century that it committed suicide. So aggressive was the the effort to tear down any walls of distinction between men and women that the feminist movement essentially cut off the branch it was standing on and they eliminated not just differences between men and women, they actually ended up eliminating the whole idea that there is such a thing as men or women, period. Period. Nowadays, people don't even typically talk in feminist terms. Now, we assume that gender itself is a figment of of a person's imagination. Oh, sure, there's biological differences at the chromosomal level and, and at the physical level between a male and a female, but that's it. And none of that really matters that much. What it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman is all opinion. That's what people tend to assume now. And so since it's opinion, nobody should have a right to tell you what your gender is. You define it for yourself so everybody's off on their own. You can't even talk about how men and women are really treated anymore if you want to be consistent. And all of this makes a conversation about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman start from a place of real confusion because we're not sure how we think about those things anyway, broadly speaking, as a culture because we've already sort of blown that whole scheme up of manhood and womanhood. So we've got these personal challenges, we've got this cultural confusion, and as if that wasn't bad enough, there's at least one more reason this can be really hard for us to talk about even in churches, and that's from often well-intentioned but sometimes misguided Christian responses to some of that cultural confusion, and here's what I mean by that. As a feminist society in, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s sought to tear down traditional roles um, that tell women things that you know, like, things like motherhood and, and being a homemaker is bad. You, know, you, need to, you need to not be stuck there. That's a denigrating role, and you need to be out doing other things, and there was this effort to create, uh, in, in, the, in the desire to create equality, to tear down some of those assumptions. Many churches responded, and this was actually a correct instinct, But many churches responded by upholding things like motherhood and and, and being married and and being a homemaker as legitimate and good and God-honoring things for a woman to do that, that a woman shouldn't feel like lesser if she doesn't have a career outside her home or something as if she's failed to accomplish something. And that was a right instinct. I love the way uh, Thabiti Anyabrile talks about this. He's a pastor on the East Coast. And, and he said at one point, you know, when we look at some of the things that were being said by some of the prominent Christian voices back in those decades... They may strike us as a little harsh by today's standards, but we should, we should be charitable with them because we've got to remember the fight that they were battling back then. There was this militant uh, effort to destroy manhood and womanhood that was undermining scriptural teaching and undermining the home and the family. And so there was an effort to try to build those things up, which was the right instinct. But having said that, unfortunately, sometimes those same voices that were often directed outside of the culture also got directed inside to the church. And so, many of you ladies can probably relate to this personally in a way that I can't. Often, if you're a Christian woman, you're in a place of like double, if not triple, confusion, because you're in a church and you're trying to figure out what does it mean that God made me a woman, and I'm in the society that says, you got to not stay at home and just have babies, because that's horrible. You need to go out and do something with your life. And then i got this church saying, it's wonderful for you to stay home, and don't just abandon that to go out and do something with your life. And you're going like, what in the world am I supposed to do, (laughs) Right? In other words, often, even when we were fighting the right battles and making the right points and and fighting for the right things, we sometimes unintentionally create this idea that to be a Christian man means you do one or two or three specific things. And to be a Christian woman means you only do one or two or three specific things. And If you don't fit that really tightly defined mold, then you're not doing what God wanted you to do. Is it any wonder this topic is confusing and hard for us to wrestle with? But there we are. It's it's deeply personal, it's confusing, and it's an often painful topic. So why are we talking about it? (laughs) Well, because it's important. Because God talks about it. And the way out of this um, issue, the way out of this this kind of uh, difficult and sometimes confusing mess, is the same commitment that we always have here at Harvest, and we should always have as Christians. We proceed. Uh, with two convictions firmly in mind. One is that God has spoken, and second, that God is good. Let me read again a little bit from the psalm that I prayed from earlier, Psalm 19. It says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts of the Lord are right, and they rejoice the heart. Both are true. In other words, our two essential convictions are that God has spoken, and when God speaks, he's right. (laughs) There is an objective truth and standard. If we start to want to change what God said to fit what we think and feel, then we may as well just give up the whole mess and and just go believe whatever we want to believe. No, God has always spoken and his words are true, but the second conviction is just as important. God's words aren't just true in like a hard, sort of like cold, impersonal way. God's truths also rejoice the heart, the Bible says. You want to find true joy, you want to find life, you go to what God has said. So God has spoken and is true, but God's word is also good. And if we start with that assumption, we have a very good chance to navigate through some very difficult and culturally confusing waters. Uh, This perspective was made really effectively uh, by Nancy DeMoss Wilgamuth, I think I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, uh, who is a nationally known speaker and Bible teacher. And she has always been somebody who from her very early age uh, had a real strong desire to be a public teacher and a lot of skill and ability to do that and yet she was a Christian woman and so she's trying to figure out like how does all this work and recently I listened to an interview with her where a younger Christian woman asked her so in your early years and you're now, you know, you're an author and you're a national speaker and all this kind of stuff but clearly you were wrestling with this stuff before anybody knew your name so like how did you begin to wrestle with your desire to teach and to lead and to be out there in the public eye so to speak and yet God view of womanhood and here was her response it was interesting her first things out of her mouth were it starts with trusting God which I thought was an insightful statement actually for anything not just this issue it starts with trusting God because a heart that trusts God is more likely to then eventually come to figure out why God's words are actually true and good we often want to understand it first and then decide whether we'll trust, but that almost never works because we're always trusting something. It's either myself or God. She says, I choose to trust God. She says, I, I trust that God's, uh, God is good and that his ways are good and that the emphasis was on that and his ways are good, that his ways aren't just right, but that they are also Beautiful. So she's looking at this thing going like, who am I as a Christian woman? I don't even quite understand that yet. I have some misgivings about it, but I'm going to choose to believe that not only is God right, but in the end, when I understand it, I'm going to see that it's good. And if I start from that place, then God can work with me and teach me, and I will find joy. The New Testament's teachings can be understood when we approach them that way. And when they do, they always are based on three core principles. So here's what I want to do with the remainder of our time together. We're actually going to, uh, this is an expository sermon like always, that means we just teach a passage of the Bible, but it's going to be slightly different in that for the remainder of our time, I'm going to spend about half of it not in our passage in First in Timothy. We're going to spend it actually in the first couple chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis. Then the second half of the remainder of our time, we will have the opportunity to unpack a little of this morning's passage. And the reason for that is very simple. Because 1 Timothy chapter 2 and every other New Testament passage on marriage and gender and sexuality, they are all referring back to the same three core principles. And each of those core principles are taught to us in the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so when you understand those three principles that all these other passages are referring back to, things feel less random, and they make a lot more sense. So I briefly want to walk through what these three principles are, and that's going to be a super brief walkthrough. I just don't have time to unpack them this morning like I want to, but I've got good news. We're going to have time to unpack them on Wednesday nights this winter. So before I even dive into Genesis, let me just mention that our next session of our Harvest Wednesday adult classes is gonna start a couple weeks after the new year in mid-January for eight Wednesday nights in January through, I think it's early March. We're gonna get together and we're gonna talk about what the Bible teaches about manhood and womanhood and how we understand that. It's a safe, it's a relaxed, it's a non-threatening environment to bring real questions and to press into the Bible's teaching and to just unpack what does God teach us about all those things. And on those Wednesday nights, I'm gonna have more opportunity to unpack things that this morning I'll just have the time to make statements. And so I know that this morning we're probably going to raise a dozen questions for every one question we answer. But that's okay. That's okay. I want to encourage us as Christians to trust that God's words are good and beautiful. Wrestle with them and know that we've got a place coming up very soon to wrestle with them. I invite you to come out on Wednesday nights. It will be a good time. So with that in mind, I want you to put a bookmark or a finger or something in First Timothy chapter 2. And let's flip back to the very first page of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, where we're going to see the first of three foundational principles that Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and everybody in the New Testament who writes about gender is always referring back to. The first principle comes out of the Bible's very first pages, and it is simply this, that men and women are equal in value, dignity, purpose, purpose, and worth. The Bible is explicit about this. I'll just call our attention to Genesis chapter one, verse uh, 26 and 27. God said, us like man, God set, uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God is going to create mankind for a purpose. Human beings have a job. And then look what it says, verse 27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. God created the human race explicitly as male and female in his image. That means that human beings have a unique place in creation. We uniquely reflect things about God to the rest of the world the way that the moon on a cloudless night reflects the rays of the sun. You can't see the sun, but you see its light bouncing off the moon. In the same way, we reflect the glories of God as people to the world around us. And here's the important thing for this morning. Both men, males, and women, females, equally are created in god's image that's explicit they are equally assigned the task of dominion and ruling over the world that god made together men don't have more of god's image than women nor vice versa we are very clearly from the opening um, ballad of the bible a two gendered single equal people and that's how the bible starts So much could be said about this, but all I'll say now is that as a practical matter, one of my biggest aspirations is that the women who are closest to me personally, if I can just bring this all the way down to the personal level for a second, um, starting with my wife and my daughter, like the two women who have to put up with me the most, that the women who are the closest to me would feel, deeply feel valued and honored by me as equal participants in this game of life. Not just by what I say, but even by the subtext, you know, the way it gets said. My aspiration is that they would feel, like even when there's an authoritative relationship, like as a parent with my daughter, or, or even, to a lesser extent, the women that work with me here on the church staff, and of course, you know, we have a staff structure, and, and I'm in a supervisory leadership position, but, but even where there's a, a leadership position, that people would feel like they're not being treated as lesser or second fiddle. Now I know that I fail at times with that because I am a sinner still (laughs) and they could probably point out many ways that that's true. I need the forgiveness of the ladies in my life uh, probably more often than I'm aware of. But I think my point is simply that I yearn for the women that I live with as a guy, as a Christian man and those I work with to feel honored by me as equals. God created men and women equally. That's the first point. That's where the Bible starts. But it doesn't end there. It goes on to the second point, which we get out of the second chapter of the Bible, and that is simply this. God designed men and women differently, on purpose. He made us different, equally human beings, and yet different kinds of human beings in many, many ways. And that was for the purpose of displaying different aspects of his glory. And so it turns out like there's there's nuance here. Um, There's there's, there's color and there's texture because this is the real world and it's complicated and the biblical view of the real world takes that into account. The Bible isn't just sort of a flat or simplistic or or kind of one-dimensional book on this issue. Genesis 1 talked about the creation of male and female and you get the impression that men and women were created actually at the same time. Now, Genesis 1 doesn't actually say that. It's more of a poetically structured, step-back word picture of everything that God did in bringing uh, order out of chaos in the original creation. Now, Genesis chapter 2 is a very different chapter. The narrative type, uh, or or the writing type, shifts from a poetic structure to narrative. It's more of a play-by-play, look at what God was doing, and it zooms in on the creation of the human race with more detail. And we find out there that actually man and woman were not created at the same time. Adam was created first, which is an important point that our passage in 2 Timothy picks up on. And he started executing the creation mandate, or the ruling mandate rather, that God had given man before Eve was even there. And then partway into it, God recognizes in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God said, It is not good that the man is alone, so I will make a helper fit for him, or suitable for him, or corresponding to him. So, ladies, there you have it proof that if you leave the world up to men, we're going to mess it up. <laughs> It's biblical it's there God says it's not good that he does this alone. He needs somebody to come along with him, not like all these other animals. He needs another him, another human who is equally in my, uh, created in my image and equal to him and yet different from him, corresponding to him. That's the idea that, that each is strong in areas where others the other is not. It's, it's an intentional uh, correspondence that God built into the very core of who we are as men and women. Like a jigsaw puzzle, two pieces cut to fit together perfectly and then they paint a picture that is beautiful to look at. Or to shift the analogy, it's like a dance. Like in so many forms of dance where the man leads and the woman is a responsive follower, but neither one of them can dance on their own, and when they do it together, it's a beautiful thing to behold. That's the picture that's being painted here. Adam has the lead role, and Eve is created to help him get it done because he couldn't do it well on his own. They're different in a complementary way, and we call this complementarianism. You may have heard that term before. Uh, As a general rule, I think eight-syllable words should be outlawed. But in this case, it's a useful one. And complementarianism is simply a shorthand way of referring to this idea that men and women, the Bible's teachings, men and women are totally equal in value, dignity, purpose, and worth, but also are complementarily different, designed to fit together on purpose. And all of this is before sin. All of this is a good thing. Now, this is the kind of thing that's hard for modern people to hear because those decades of militant feminism have drilled into our heads that the role of head or leader is all glory and that the role of helper is like a demeaning and degrading role, but from the biblical perspective, now it can be further from the truth. Do you realize that God himself delights to take on the title of helper? Jesus said in John 16, it's to your uh, benefit that I go away because then I will send the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, fully God, and he is the helper. That's his title. That's what Jesus calls him. He doesn't even call him by name. He simply refers to him as the helper. He's one who's gonna come alongside you as Christians and help you do what God has called you to do. God himself is delighted to submit to that role and sees no denigration in it. So why do we? That insight was a key part of Jackie Hill Perry's transformation. Uh, If you don't know Jackie, she is uh, an incredible lady that I love to listen to. She's a Christian hip-hop artist and lately speaker and writer. Uh, She grew up by her own um, description uh, taught. She was raised to believe that a woman should fight, should take, and should achieve Women have to earn their place at the table, and anything else was just weakness. It was disgusting. That was the world she was raised in from her earliest years. That's how she understood life, and she lived that way for many years. But later on, she embraced Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She received forgiveness of her sins. She got excited about who Jesus was. And then as she started growing as now a Christian, she had to start to wrestle with some different ideas about what men and women are in the Bible than what she had picked up from her family and her culture and other places where she got it. And in her, uh, part of her process, she describes it this way. She said she had to realize that submission is a good thing because even Christ did it, and he's God. But he submitted to his Father. And she said, when I realized that, it's like, who am I to look at submission and say, oh, I'm above that, I'm not doing that, when my God and Savior doesn't think it's above him? It started to reframe for her. Maybe there's something else going on. It's beautiful to hear her teach on these principles and describe her own journey with it. She goes on to say that seeing Jesus in complementarianism helped me see it as beautiful, not ugly. It helped me see the spiritual benefits and fruits that come from living a life of service to my family and my church and my God. Well, The first two principles are that men and women are created equally. Second, created in a distinctively complementary way, but there's one more principle that's essential, and that is that sin messed it all up. Genesis chapter 3 actually makes me angry often when I read it, in a sad way, because there we see sin corrupting gender roles, transforming a glorious and beautiful dance into war. And something that looks beautiful becomes ugly. Something that's life-giving and glorious becomes just a wasteland of battle and broken hearts. In Genesis 3.16, God tells Eve that part of the curse of sin will be pain and childbirth. That's maybe the part of that verse we're more familiar with. But secondly, he also tells her that part of the result of sin will be that there's going to be a battle of the sexes. He says that your desire will be for your husband, meaning you're gonna yearn for his role. You'll be discontent with what I've given you to do and he's gonna respond in kind. It says, but he will rule over you. Now that's not male headship the way God designed it to function. Male headship is about leadership and initiative and taking the hits and laying yourself down and sacrifice for the benefit of everyone and everything around you. But it's gonna get transformed in this ugly, sick way to be a dominance and an authoritarian type of role. And he says, this is the result of sin. It's all a heinous distortion of what God had originally created. And it's been happening for thousands of years. These three foundational truths help us understand what's going on in our own hearts and in the world around us when it comes to this discussion of manhood and womanhood. And Tim Keller helpfully points out that there are two major tendencies in our modern world on these issues. Um, what's going to follow here in the next minute is kind of my words and my way of explaining it, but I owe the original insight uh, to Tim Keller. We've got these three essential truths the Bible always teaches. That's the framework that always gets referred back to. Uh, The equality of the sexes, the complementary difference of the sexes, and then the sinful battle of the sexes. And, And Keller points out that there's really two responses. The first you might call the traditionalist view, and the second would be the modern view. And it simply means this. The traditionalist view basically sees men as superior to women. Traditionally, that's how history has functioned. That's how most cultures have functioned. One only needs to think about how uh, even in our relatively enlightened modern society here in the U.S., how historically recent it has been that women were even allowed to vote. That's not that old as a point of our history. And how in many Western uh, European societies, up until just recently, women were not allowed to inherit property, run businesses, get an education, on and on it goes. The point is that throughout most societies and most of history in different ways, some worse than others, but all the same kind of thing, men have access to power and to opportunities that women simply do not have access to because they're women. You're just pushed into very tightly and narrowly defined roles. And many societies are even more degrading than that that's still true today but you know the ancient greek assumption about men and women was just horrible by today's standards and by the way that's the assumption that was happening in the first century when the apostle paul was writing first timothy and the assumption was simply this the greeks had a tendency to assume that women were basically half-baked men and we laugh at it now and i mean we we should actually if it wasn't so serious it would be really funny But they were serious. Like, I mean, the the basic idea was if you came to uh, full-fledged gestation in your mother's womb, then you would be born male. Um, If you were born and you came out female, it's like, oh, not quite done yet. Like, you know, the cornbread, you pull out and you stick the toothpick in the middle and it comes out all soupy and you're like, ah, it still needs more time. Oh, but you can't put it back in the oven, so I guess you just got a substandard loaf of cornbread. That's what a woman was in the ancient Greek world. I'm serious. It's like, The pinnacle of humanity is a male. Women are just second fiddle. It's terribly degrading. This is normal. And, And God told us thousands of years earlier that would be the case. So the traditionalist view resolves the battle of the sexes this way. It simply declares men the winner. There, war over. Right? The traditionalist view says women can't do certain things, men can, so there's nothing to fight about. Or to put it in the language of our three principles here, The traditionalist view responds to the battle of the sexes in number three by denying the reality of number one, that there's equality between the two genders, and taking the differences that are in number two and elevating them to an absolute that God never intended. So it responds to number three by denying number one and making an idol out of number two. That's the traditional view. Now, the modern view that we're more familiar with in our society, interestingly enough, does the total opposite. We've already seen how feminism was so successful in the end of the last century at dismantling many traditional gender roles that existed in our society that it dismantled the idea of gender itself. Nowadays, people don't believe that gender is actually real. It's just something that's, that's in your head. And as a result, gender is whatever you want it to be. And the basic belief is that a perfect society will come when, when everybody defines themselves. It's not working, but that's a different sermon for a different day. That's the belief So in other words, modernists resolve the battle of the sexes by denying that there are sexes. There's nothing to fight about because there are no men and there are no women. Oh, sure, there's biological males and biological females, but that's not really all that important. You are, gender-wise, whatever you think you are and free to change at any given time and any given whim. There's nothing to fight about. In other words, the modern view responds to the problem of number three, the sinful battle of the sexes, by denying the existence of the second biblical principle, that there are any inherent differences between men and women, and then elevating the first one, the equality of men and women, to an absolute that God never intended. Do you see how that's the exact opposite? The traditionalist view responds to the battle of the sexes by declaring men the winners. The modern view responds to the battle of the sexes by denying that there are sexes. The first one responds to three by denying number one, and elevating number two to an idol. The second one denies. responds number three by denying number two and elevating number one to an idol. Either way, we're confused, according to Scripture. Now that actually finally sets us up to get into our passage this morning. <laughs> because there's a common misconception, and the reason that background was so important is simply this. The common misconception is that many modern people think that the biblical view is essentially what I just described as the traditional view that men are superior and women are inferior and that's what the Bible teaches and that's what we hear in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2. But it's not. The response of the Bible to sinful corruption is not that one person is superior to another. What church is the Bible's response to sinful corruption every single time without fail? What is it? Tell me. Say it loud. I just heard it a few times. We say it all the time here at Harvest. God's response to sin is? the gospel. It's the gospel of Christ. It's new hearts that restore God's original plan. That's what the Apostle Paul is writing about. So, if you've got your finger or bookmark in First Timothy 2, we have time to just make a couple of key observations about this passage. Uh, The Apostle Paul teaches three things, one um, instruction to men, two to women. The first two instructions are relatively non-controversial, I'll say very little about them. The third one is the one that's more controversial, so we'll have a couple minutes at the end to maybe unpack that a little bit. The first one, he tells men in verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8, he tells men to pray, lifting up holy hands rather than angry and quarreling hands. Basically, here's what's going on here. We've already seen that these false teachers were loving debate. They were arguing and debating to make themselves look smart. Like their normal position was this. Fists closed, demanding that their view be heard and that their uh, view carry the day so that they would be seen as important. In other words, they were using the church to put themselves up on a pedestal instead of being the church that is a pedestal to put Jesus up. And so I love the word picture. The Apostle Paul says, hey guys, rather than this, let's get a little bit more of this. Lift up your hands, men in the church. Lift up your hands and pray. Lead your church, lead your family in praying. Praying for what? Praying for all the things that we looked at in the previous paragraph that Jordan taught us through last week. Pray for the leaders of our society and stability in our society so that the gospel would spread and the people would see Jesus. That characterizes godly manhood. Not this, I'm in charge, I'm smart, boorish overbearing nonsense. So he tells men to pray rather than debate, to lift up Jesus rather than themselves. Secondly, in verses 9 and 10, he tells the women in the church to dress moderately and perhaps even a little bit modestly. He talks there about um, women not adorning themselves um, with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire. Apparently some of the women in this church were women of means. They were from wealthy families, Ephesus was a big town, uh, it had a lot of money in it, so some of the families in this local church were probably fairly rich, most of them likely not, and what a lot of the more wealthy women evidently were doing were coming in and dressing to the nines on Sunday morning. The church for them was a fashion show, it was a place to show off all their gold and their jewels and their gorgeous gowns that most of the rest of the women in the church could never afford. was a way to say, eat your heart out ladies, don't you wish you had this jewelry Or maybe for men to look at him and say, gosh, I wish I could put that kind of a ring on my wife's finger, but I'm just a poor laborer. They were once again using the church to put to to put themselves on display. Totally different details, but the exact same thing that the angry men were doing just a couple verses before. And he says, Don't put yourself on display in the church. Dress in a way that doesn't call attention to yourself. Be the church that puts Jesus on display. And he tells the women to do that by uh, adorning themselves or clothing themselves, At a play on words here, with good works because acts of service in love, submitting to the needs of people around you, puts Jesus on display. He says, that's what you want to be as a godly woman, not somebody who's out there to get her own position. Lastly, in verses uh, 11 through the end of the chapter, he instructs the women in the church to learn with quiet submissiveness now this is where some of the language starts to grate on us as modern people what does that mean does that mean that women should never ever like speak out loud in church like there's supposed to be some quiet corner where all the women go and then the men can talk because you know is it that kind of a traditionalist denigrating thing and we know that's not the case both from what's in this passage as well as from what's in others let me just quickly say um, the apostle paul the human author of this book sometimes gets a bad rap for being anti-woman because he wrote stuff like this but we completely miss the context of Scripture if we say that. And most of the people who say that aren't thinking about the rest of the context of Scripture. This is the same guy who praised women for being um, prophets, They were speaking for God. They were praying in churches. He loved it. Many of his letters, he lists the people who are his most faithful ministry companions. And like half of the names on those lists are all female names. He doesn't really treat them any different, men or women. It's just, are they faithful to the gospel or not? And he upholds them. You see, the New Testament church gave women a much greater platform for ministry and creative service and contribution than their wider society did. And guys like this were leading the charge in that. He even upholds the husband-wife team of Priscilla and Aquila for teaching and discipling a gifted young yet ignorant teacher named Apollos. And Priscilla knew more of the Bible than this young man Apollos did and she taught him a thing or two. And Paul says, good for you because he's such a good speaker. Now the church is growing because his theology is better thanks to this lady. Yes, Paul believed in women teaching men. <laughs> so what is he getting at here? What he's getting at here is, think for a moment. Sometimes it's helpful. We say, "What does he mean by quiet submissiveness?" Sometimes it's helpful to define a term by looking at its opposite. What is the opposite of quiet submissiveness? What's the opposite of quiet? Loud. What's the opposite of submissive? Somebody who's willing to defer to others. Arrogant, brash. I want what's mine. So you've got a group of women. Again, I'm not sure how many, but there were enough of them that it was a concern maybe some of the same women that were dressing fancy, I don't know, in this church that their whole attitude was to be loud, brash, arrogant, and to muscle their way for a seat at the table. It may be a case of them taking the newfound freedom and value and dignity that Christianity gave them, which was a great gift, perhaps too far, or another way of saying that, it may have been their way of embracing the first biblical principle of gender, that men and women are equal, and ignoring the second, that God intended us also to be different for his glory in complementary ways. So when verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church, um, the the word or there is a little bit unfortunate. It was originally written in the Greek language. It literally reads, I do not permit a woman to teach to have authority over a man. It's literally what it says. Uh, The English translation makes it sound like those are two separate ideas. I think they're actually pretty clearly connected. In other words, what's in view here is the exercise of authority in the life of a local church to define who we are as a church and where we're going as a church based on a teaching of what God's word says about a church. So the teaching and the authority are are inextricably linked together. There is a role in every local church to say, this is who we are, this is where we're going because this is what God's word says and that's not a democratic process that's up to everybody's personal opinion. Churches need to have a select group of people who are leading the charge. It doesn't mean these are the only people in a church who do any teaching. It means they do the primary role of saying, this is who we are, this is where we're going, because this is what we believe about what God's word says. In other words, I just described the office of elder. And it's not surprising that the very next paragraph, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul starts talking about, elders and deacons. We'll do that next week. And so what he is saying is, The elders lead the church in defining who we are and where we're going based on what God's word says. So the, the most natural application, concrete application of that second biblical principle that God created men and women in complementarily different ways, the most clear application of that in a local church context is that the elders of a church are to be men. And he tells the women in the church who are trying to muscle their way into that position, either by the official office or just to occupy that role, that's not what a godly woman is about. Frankly, that's not what a godly man is about either. Because being an elder is not about position. It's about leading and serving and giving so that a church can be healthy and people can come to Christ. Is that because men are better at being elders? <laughs> no. No. It explicitly has nothing to do with competencies. Many men are completely ignorant and horrible leaders. Many women are very intelligent and capable leaders. That, that's not a gender thing. That's just the kind of gifts God gave you. This has nothing to do with competency. It has to do with a church dancing to Jesus' music in a way that puts him on display. I'd like to end there because I'm out of time, but I can't not comment on verse 15. So let me just say one thing about this. Probably the most difficult verse in this whole passage. Oh, now uh. One thing I need to say before that, which will help us with verse 15. In verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul takes us back to these two key principles. Verse 13 takes us back to Genesis chapter 2. For Adam was created first. Why is he talking about Adam and Eve all of a sudden? Do you see the grid? Do you see the biblical framework? The New Testament's always going back to what God told us about who we are as men and women and trying to apply it to modern day situations. So he's saying, look, Adam was created first and not Eve, and Eve was deceived and not Adam, and that's why there's sin. And ladies, you're like, well, gosh, I mean, Adam played a role too. Women kind of seem to get a bad rap in this chapter, right? If you think that, let me just encourage you to go home and read Romans chapter 5, and you'll feel a lot better about yourself, ladies. Because in that passage, the same guy, the apostle Paul, says, through one man sin entered the world. We're all dying because of one guy, Adam. It's all Adam's fault. And the guys are like, you know, Eve was there too. Like, she doesn't even get mentioned. She gets off the hook in chapter 5, and it's all Adam's fault, right? So understand that there's a balance to these things. But here's the point of what's being said. When Adam abdicated his headship role and did not protect the garden and his wife from the influences of the serpent, but stood there passively, which Genesis 3 says he did, and Eve then stepped up and said, I'm going to take over, and I'm going to make my own decisions, that was when original sin happened. Paul says that's what got us all messed up in the first place. So let's not go back there. That's not God's Way, that's not the path to life. So he always goes back to that context. So now let me just say one thing about Genesis 3 5, or sorry, First uh, Timothy 2:15. Yet she, referring to Eve, perhaps as Eve embodying all women, shall be saved through childbearing, if they continue faith, love, holiness, with self-control. What is that all about? Um, I'm pretty confident I basically know what the point is. I don't know why it's worded the way it is. So I'm just going to own that right now. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter has this funny little comment some of you are familiar with. He's like telling churches like, hey, you should read letters from the Apostle Paul. That guy is speaking God's words. And then he says, some of what Paul says is hard to understand, but you should listen to him anyway because he's speaking God's words. And then I come to verses like this and I go, I think this is what Peter was, I can't prove that, I don't know, but like, this is one of those like, why did you say that the way you said it? I'm not really sure. But here's clearly what I think is happening because it fits the context. When he talks about being saved, obviously I'm talking about eternal salvation. This This is Apostle Paul. This is the guy who gave his whole life to saying there's only one way to be saved, by grace, through faith, alone, in Christ alone, right? That's it. So clearly, there's nothing a woman has to do in order to be saved from her sins. The idea is being preserved or cared for through a tough time. And what is a woman going to be preserved through? The pain of childbearing. Why is he talking about the pain of childbearing? Any guesses? Because we've been reading Genesis 3. And the first part of the curse announced to Eve was that there would be pain in childbirth. And then the second is that there would be this battle of the sexes. And so what the Bible's basically saying here is, look, if a godly woman seeks to be a godly woman and to give her life to Christ and and to live out his purposes for godly womanhood, unfortunately, like, when we become Christians and give our lives to Jesus, the world doesn't get magically better. We still live in a sin-cursed, broken world, and, and God doesn't just take all the pain away and make everything easy. I wish he would, but he doesn't. And so women are still gonna have pain in childbearing. It's not like Christian women have less pain in childbearing. Obviously, that's not true. The the, the effects of the curse are still with us and we have to live with them even as godly committed Christian people. And so he's saying when we do that, God is going to sustain us. He's going to preserve us as we live out faithful gospel lives in a sin-cursed broken world along with all the brokenness we experience as a result. So it's a call for men to be Jesus' men. It's a call for women to be Jesus' women. I hope that, that the main thrust of this passage is clear to us because this stuff matters. If we as a church are living out God's principles for manhood and womanhood rather than our cultures, it puts Jesus on display. And that's what we're called to do as a godly people. Now, if you're anything like me, that brings up about 57 questions about like, okay, but what does that look like here, 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 and here? Those are awesome questions. Come out Wednesday nights. We'll talk about it because I'm out of time. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for the truths of your word. Because we believe as a church that your words are true and that they are a delight to the heart. Father, we admit when we read words like this, some of us do not immediately find delight in them. We find pain, we bring up bad memories, we find frustration or anxiety. But God, you have not given us anything to frustrate us as an end in itself or make us anxious as an end in itself. You've given us your word to give us the path of life. And so Father, God, I pray for each one of us where we're at, particularly members of this church, wherever this message and this principle finds us, that you would make us a people who even if we don't fully understand all of the implications or we're still wrestling through what it means, that we would be a people who trust you and see the wisdom in who you've made us to be as men and as women in your image so that we can put on a dance as a church that draws the attention of people to you, not to ourselves. This we pray for our good and for the eternal glory of the name of your Son. Amen.